Intertextual Cardboard Experience. Hello and welcome to Intertextual Cardboard Experience, episode 10. So another extremely special guest in order to fill out that 10th spot in Dan Thoreau, board game reviewer, Space Biff, the Space Biff. Any other titles that you feel like I'm missing here? Uh, just Dan. I'm just, just Dan. Dan. Just Dan. Okay. I like that. Uh, typically, you know, I want to start off with a type of introductory question, a background question in games. But for you, I have something a little bit different. And Ooh. yeah. So my question for you is, what is the first piece of writing you did that made you realize that you love writing? That made you realize that writing was something you wanted to continue oh. personally, professionally, and and forever. Oh no, uh, <laughs> that's so hard. Um, it's probably too far back to remember because when I was a child, I wanted to be a writer. Um, I remember in second grade, we were asked, you know, you fill out these goofy things that say like, "What do you want to be when you grow grow up." And I wrote uh, librarian <laughs> because I thought that that's the only way that you could, you know, spend your time with books and write books. I thought librarians wrote all books. Um, so I've always, I've always loved writing uh, ever since I was very little. Um, doing it professionally. I mean, I, I had, I flirted with other things and, and to be honest, I don't do it professionally. I do have a real career real, you know, in doubt quotes that I do real things, uh, adult real things that look good to bankers and on taxes. And, um, but yeah, I've always loved writing and uh, reading and just the written word. All right. Yeah. Very cool. I, I'm glad that it did happen so young. Um, you know, I think, you know, personally, I, I like to write uh, a bit too. And there, there are like a few pieces that stick out because I don't, I, I know what you're talking about with those, you know, second grade responses and that you put it into a book and it's like, when I grow up, I want to be a librarian. <laughs> I, like I mean, that. that still sounds great, right? Like, I'd love to be a librarian. That sounds like a hoot. But uh, so when did you decide that you wanted to be an intertextuality man? Mm, okay, that's a good question, too. So I, I wanted to be an intertextuality man, probably officially a couple years ago so okay. I, I think you know the first person that i reached out to about an interview is my very first uh interview who's somebody that you have talked to and reviewed a lot of uh, his games is john cloudus yeah i love john yeah yeah so i got the the north was the first game that i was introduced to uh like from john's collection and then mm -hmm. obviously kind of went back and then did every single subscription and everything like that. But, you know, this idea of like the way that the cards, you know, made this tableau and then created these worlds and told these, you know, emergent stories as opposed to having to be like super text heavy in a storytelling way just felt to me at that time, like I just hadn't encountered that. I was a little bit younger in the hobby. Mm -hmm. So I was like, I want to talk to you about that. And, and then I didn't. <laughs> And I didn't do the interview for like two years. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it changed a lot though. Like the initial idea for what I wanted to do was just more like, it was kind of like three B's is like 
comparing a, a board game, a book, and a beverage. Like, what's the perfect little combination? I'm like, uh, I, I like it. Like, I don't hate the idea, <laughs> Yeah, but yeah. but I wanted to keep it more open-ended. Yeah, I mean that why not? You know, it's kind of like five games for Doomsday where it's just it, it's a gimmick, but you know, it, it it's an illuminating gimmick. Yeah, so I I think I think just through a combination of different games and the way that they told stories or or borrowed from you know published texts and and just like that interconnection and and just seeing what different creators use as their inspirations, uh, all that Mm -hmm. stuff is just kind of what I what I'm trying to talk about. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah, thank you. So when Cool. did you first learn the word intertextuality? Hmm. Okay, I. I have like a mixed like feeling about the word Mhm. intertextuality too. Uh so you know, I think using like intertextuality as as like a blanket or like an umbrella term for, you know, allusions, references and the ways in which like worlds uh interact is something that people will debate like <laughs> I don't mm know. I like words and I like their meanings, but I'm not going to get like super hung up in like, that's too broad. You shouldn't use like a term like inner intertextual or intertextuality to like describe it. Uh-huh. Yeah. But uh, I, that's a good question. Probably, probably some essay that I was writing. So I went to like undergrad when, when most people typically, you know, like after high school is like the year after. And then I Yeah. Then I didn't know that I wanted to initially teach. And then I went back to school and did like a year and a half, two years to do like a post-bac program to round out specifically teaching classes for English. And I think it was probably some some essay that I was reading uh, for study that, that tipped me Yeah. off to the word. <laughs> That's interesting. So it's like a natural term for your field because English uh, talk about intertextuality a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And oh sorry. Well, it's a bit of a swear word in the field that I started out in because Oh gosh. I went, so, so I pursued my uh, graduate degree <laughs> in history of religion okay. and intertextuality kind of arises. Uh, I mean, it's commonly... conceptualized as being like postmodern and you know deconstruction of scripture texts and to me that's great right like i'm i'm not using it pejoratively um like i'm like yeah let's get intertextual let's 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 dig into these texts but a number of people especially here in the united states are like intertextuality that's just a way of you know godless blah 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 so Oh, okay. kind of a fun term Yeah. Yeah, there's and and there's a couple uh video essays that I've watched and I try to introduce to to students and it's more of a like I want to open their eyes to especially like in these days about how much media is out there and how much media borrows from from things that have already been created or gives nods to it, whether Yeah. it's more of like an Easter egg or super directly illusions and all that. So there are a couple good ones in, uh, there's this one titled like weaponized intertextuality Mm, I haven't that, heard of that. yeah, yeah. And then there's a response one that is uh, called, I think it's like a response to weaponized intertextuality by like the nerd writer or something. And, 
and it just then talks it uses uh stranger things to go through this idea of uh weaponized pastiche as opposed to intertextuality and it paints intertextuality mm -hmm. in a better light than the weaponized one then does it's like mm -hmm. saying if, if you do it well and borrow from your sources and give credit to it while creating like a new thing that you can make these really fun pieces of art so yeah cool yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so like i said i just finding those uh explorations is kind of kind of what i want i'm I'm like an expert in zero things. Like I, I have no area of expertise. I just, I just want to dive into like so many, like different areas and just, just see, see what they are. That's the fun of adulthood, though. Is is being an amateur in all of these great things. I I am the amateurishest of amateurs. Then. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, enough enough about my inner textuality. Um, and on to <laughs> some ideas about impressions. So, you know, I think there are a million uh, different things to appreciate, find humor in, uh, relate with, feel empathy for based on your writing, regardless of like the content of a review uh, or the tone of the words, y your titles usually produce, uh, make me grin at the very least. So, <laughs> or, or laugh. With that said, uh, a focus on like your titles. What's one title of yours that you, that you really like that made you grin the most or, or laugh, laugh a little bit after, after thinking of it? It could be recent, maybe yeah. maybe limit yourself to like the past few months or something. Hmm, like a like an article title, like an article title. Oh no, you love you're you're asking such good but difficult questions. Um, I'm trying to think. Um, sometimes sometimes the titles get me in trouble. Is the thing. <laughs> so I'm thinking of uh some of those titles so for example i'll give i'll just give an example um and this is not my favorite title by any means but uh so you might know this but um i wrote one of i i think it might be the but i you know who knows uh one of the first reviews of wingspan by elizabeth hargrave and um and my title for that review was this feather, <laughs> this feather brained game is for the birds. <laughs> and I really like wingspan personally, actually. And, and so it's just that I wanted to have a title that was kind of goofy and, you know, and <laughs> some, some fan, and I appreciate when people do this, but um, a lot, a great deal of my uh, heartburn comes from whenever any of my articles is shared on Reddit because you you get people who live on reddit who will comment on your stuff and everyone was like well this title makes it sound like he doesn't like the game but then the review is positive and that's not okay and uh <laughs> I, I just thought it was funny um so that's probably the one that comes to mind most immediately just because of the uh very critical response to it which was which, which was charming in its own way you know yeah i mean like I said, I, I value titles and I think, you know, 
the way that you transition from the title uh, to, or, you know, when, when your, your articles and reviews are sent out every, there's like a first few paragraphs, let's get intro, your hook, and then yeah. you click on the review and then you get the rest. Uh, there, there is a power in a title and being goofy or funny, like in this particular instance is, is what it is, but there's also, you know, the value of reading the whole thing and just understanding that it's a joke. Yes. And, and maybe that's the worst example I could have given, right? Because that a title is sort of a pledge because you're, you're giving a little bit of a, a snippet of what you're going to be saying and you're trying to draw people in. And hopefully the title I think will make sense as they're reading it. And sometimes my titles are just in jokes that I, I'm, I'm nervous. Nobody will get them. <laughs> and, um, and that was definitely one of those examples. I just thought that title was funny. And, um, but like, for example, I recently, um, there's this really good game that isn't out yet. It's called, um, the old King's crown. Mm. And, um, I wrote a preview for it because I was really quite smitten with it. Um, it's designer Pablo showed it to me a little bit early. And so I, I, I agreed that I would write about it, you know, to coincide with the Kickstarter campaign. And the title of that review was something like maybe check under the mountain with a question mark. And I'm going, well, nobody's going to understand this title or those that do are going to be nerds and you know, who wants to talk to a bunch of nerds like me. And, um, and of course to me, the title is we're talking about the old King's crown. This, this King has disappeared and I'm going, well, this is the King under the mountain, you know, like Barbarossa or, you know, in, in another thousand years, George Washington, you know, th this, this great leader has disappeared and hidden himself away and he's actually under the mountain and he'll return someday. And to me, <laughs> To me, that's the fun of a title is it's just the first chance to be playful and goof off and re refer to things that nobody will understand. Um, like another example is um, I wrote about Cole Worley's John Company and um, I've written about it like four or five times. And the, the title of, I think my preview to the second edition was something like the mere anarchy of John Company. And Again, Redditors were mad at that title because they're like, that doesn't even mean anything. <laughs> <laughs> and of course it means things, you know, it's, it's like a reference to a poem and it's a, it's a reference to a Dalrymple book. You know, it was like two references. Give me some credit. But, uh, so, uh, I hope, I hope that this is a useful answer, but I do think that there is power in a title, but sometimes the power can be in how enigmatic and goofy they are. I, I'm all for that. I, I appreciate that 100%. Uh, one of the ones that it stuck out to me only because I initially read your review when you posted it. And then when I started like playing the game again, I, I visited, revisited the review and realized that I must not have like looked at the title much. But uh, for your review of uh, Sale and using the, the lyrics for the, the title <laughs> for that, I was just like, oh, that's really funny. <laughs> It made me made me I, laugh. Oh, that game! I love that game, but the problem is its title, right? Like you, the instant you play the game, you go sale, and it just <laughs> it's just stuck there. I don't even know any other lyric. I think from that awful song, like I guess this is how an angel cries sale, and then you just go back to this is how an angel cries sale. I don't know any other lyric, but that one is just so ingrained every time I play that game. Yeah, that's that's the type of song that will will sneak up on you and and bug you in that <laughs> way. But yeah, yeah, like I 
I'm all for titles, especially as somebody that sees a a slew of the most uncreative, uncreatively written titles, like essay <laughs> or <laughs> or no title. I'm like, I said, put a title in. <laughs> I said, try to be yes. And, you know, that was one of the things that I I realized when I was in grad school that I could have more fun because so one of the reasons I started my website space Biff was because I was doing a lot of uh, scholarly writing where you can't use contractions. There's a limit to how expressive you can be. Um, and I really wanted to do more of the kind of writing that I wanted to do, um, which was uh, expressive writing, which was cr critical writing, even fiction writing. And so I started writing my site at that time and um but one thing i was getting away with that my uh my professors were loving my uh my graduate advisors is that my essays would always have good titles you know they wouldn't be like a study of merovingian queens reconsidered you know blah 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 I, it would be like mean queens like it'd be like a rhyme or like some silly thing because i want to be snappy and draw people in and um and so I was even trying to slip in a little bit of fun into my titles as a graduate student. So, uh, but I apologize, Reddit. I'm sorry that the titles <laughs> sail on by. I see I, sail behind your head, by the way. Oh, here, let's take a look. Oh, yeah. There yeah, it is. There's sail. I was going to say, you, I will, I'll, I'll show you. I think sometimes I do this. I'll, I'll show the mess. So, uh, you, Looks, yeah, there's the mess. There's nice. The mess. Yeah. I love it. It looks like there's like some games on top of a shelf and they're they're neatly displayed, but <laughs> uh, there's there's the mess. I do have it's sale. all in the angle. <laughs> it is. It's mostly just because I think the angle is because of the mess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, also it's like a, you're at an exciting angle. And I guess our listeners will be deprived that you've done that cool thing where the hor the horizon is at the bottom of the camera angle so it's it's a good angle right yep yeah, they'll maybe maybe someday i'll i'll give them a little treat where i'll throw me on youtube <laughs> and they can they can see all the fun that all the interviewees get to have yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh well i I like your answer, and like you said, it may may oh, have been you. a bad example, but I don't think so at all. I think it is the perfect example of how you approach oh, well, your titles. <laughs> Not that you yeah, needed my validation goofy. at all, but you know what? I'll take it. Life life is hard enough, right? We we need all of the validation we can get. I agree with that. Okay, I I I've got a twist for you now, though. Ooh. Okay, so this is like the one twist. I'm not gonna I'm not Oof. gonna try to trick you. I might unintentionally do so later, but we're we're a bit into the episode, and I have a working title for this episode. <laughs> it is it is TBD BD, so to be determined mm. by Dan. Ooh, but but that means the the implication there is that you're going to have to eventually name. <laughs> this episode i'm excited okay. let's do it okay so once once we get to the end if there's something that pops up or even in the middle even if we haven't like covered everything and you're like <laughs> this is the title i will i'll stop and i'll type it and i'll highlight it okay okay sounds good so that that's it just got ideas it, keep it in the back of your head it is okay. currently tbd bd which is i'm gonna get out a, i'll get out a three by five card 
and okay. we'll write down some ideas. Perfect. Um, and like I said, this is probably like the happiest I've been with the title that I know is going to not be the title <laughs> <laughs> of my own. Sometimes they just come to you, right? <laughs> Very good. Okay. So hmm. thinking about like moving on to impressions. So we've talked about like first impressions with, with titles. I also talked about like the structure of your reviews, how I like the hook, how the hook is sent out. So every time I get my, my space fifth notification, I know I get to take like a minute out of my day at the very least and read like a nicely introduced review and then, and then read it later whenever I get the time to actually sit down and, and engage with it. Um, so like I said, valuing uh, that hook, I like. So then the question is to you, what are some ways that you feel games can work to set up strong impressions to people that receive them? That's a good question. It's a hard question too. You know, I've been thinking a lot lately about one of the limitations in board game rhetoric um, is a limitation that I don't actually get to experience very often because in my game, in my gaming group, I'm, I'm the loser who has to like read all the rule books because I'm the one who has the games. Um, like no one in my game group buys board games, right? They, they just sort of leech off of me, um, which is totally welcome. You know, they borrow games and sometimes they're just like, can I have that game? <laughs> like, okay i guess so you know feeling abused um but there's there's this interesting limitation i remember patrick real was talking about different forms of rhetoric that expose themselves in board games and one of them is the rhetoric of the text right that that you can read a you can read the rule book and the rule book might have disclaimers in it or explain the topic that the game is about or clarify that what we would call the theme. Some people would call it the theme of the board <laughs> game and um, not me, um, but some people. And like uh, a recent example would be Cole Worley's John Company Second Edition, you know, which uh, Shut Up and Sit Down recently did a video review with Tom Brewster. It was a very good review. And he talks about like there's this essay that actually urges the player who's teaching the game to... Uh, get the consent of the players so that they know what they're getting into. But do the players know that? Because they're not reading the rule book, right? Like all of this explanatory note only exists for like one in four people who play games. <laughs> um, and I, and every board game group I've been a part of has been kind of composed that way where you'll have like one person who's kind of in charge of reading everything. And then the others just sort of passively take what that person chooses to pass along. So I've been thinking a lot about presentation in games um, and how they can hook people in and how they can be clarifying of their intent or goals. Um, there's a recent game called Daybreak, which is about um, climate crisis, and you're working together to uh, fix the climate, right, uh, to, to achieve carbon drawdown. And that book is really good in terms of its hook because its rule book opens with like 10 pages of just explaining the basics of what this game is going to be about, what its topic is. It goes through and it's like, here's what a card looks like. And here's three ways to use a card before you ever get to like the component list or the setup. It's super friendly. And in contrast to some other games, I felt like I understood the game at 
at least at a broad thousand foot level before I actually sat down to even see what's in the game. Um, and I really appreciated that in contrast to some other games like this last Saturday, we played Sancore by Fabio Lop- Lopiano, which is kind of like this Vital Lacerda, you know, difficulty game with all these disparate parts. And I read this rule book like three times and just could not picture how this game functions because, and I looked for a teaching video. There isn't one, you know, I was just, re- and I don't usually look for teaching videos. I was really floundering and it took us a few, you know, it took us like an hour to learn how to play this dang game. And so, that's one way is that the game can like open up like Daybreak did and say, okay, here's what the game is about. Here's how you play it. But I'm still curious about the effect of that because only like one in four players is going to see it uh, in most gaming groups. And so I I think it's a real pickle. I'm glad I'm not a game designer. <laughs> like that's my main conclusion there. Um because the first impression for some people is going to be the rule book, but the first impression for others is going to be the the box art or the game actually set up on the table. And maybe the big draw is just going to be Ian O'Toole doing his magic or whatever. Um, so it's a hard question, and I don't think there's just one answer. I think there's a range of answers, sometimes even within just the same game. Um, is that a good enough non-answer? I mean, like, intertextuality lends itself <laughs> to sprawling non-answers, right? So. That's... I think that is 100% the point. So I think that was not a non-answer. And I think that was, and I think (laughs) generally, well, and honestly too, I think the best answers are more questions. Like if, uh, if I was going to claim any like definitive knowledge with any answer I said for anything, I would, (laughs) I would try to preface that before I'm like, okay, you should take, you should take my words as, as the concrete truth. So and the best we can do really is anecdote in many cases, right? Like, so for you, what what kind of game presents a good first impression or hook to you? Hmm. Well, that's like a, so, I mean, that's a good question. I made it. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, you know, I think, I think just, I think the differences in the way that, you know, I probably approach games as opposed to like you, whereas like some of, I mean, I'm not saying that you don't do this, but like a lot of like the research or like looking into the games or getting excited about games would be from like reading reviews, people like you, primarily you, uh, or watching them as well. So then, then I get sometimes before I would even have that game, like an impression in my head. So that's that's an extra like layer. Yeah. But I'm also uh, the person I mean, I don't really actually have like the the most uh, concrete or normal board game group. A lot of my friends, I'll introduce some typically like card games to if like we're able to meet up and and throw those around. I'll play games with like my wife and I'll primarily play a lot of games by myself. Mm-hmm. So, so then I'm going to be the person that has the rule book as the first kind of like interaction point, uh, then too. So then I guess, uh, this is going to be a non-answer as well. Then I, I think, <laughs> I think, you know, the, the first Im- impression then to me, the thing that kind of like will stick out the most is 
just debriefing the first play. And I know that first play uh, of any game isn't necessarily going to be, you know, like the definitive critical opinion on a game. But, you know, is this a game like how do I see like the nuances of this game developing like for myself? If this is a game that I'm only playing by myself, like where is it going to take me based on, mm -hmm. you know, like step number one or in what context am I going to introduce this to my friends, uh, my wife or, or other people that I want to play it with as well. And then what experiences do I think that that will create? Like, and are they going yeah. to be the experiences that, that I want them to be? So it's, it's, it's like that, you know, one, one example, uh, like, like I said, without having like a steady game group, like I'm never really pulling out anything that's going to be particularly sticky or, or tough. Mm -hmm. But I play, uh, Fayum two handed mm -hmm. and that game like was stuck in my head for like a week, <laughs> just mm -hmm. like seeing the crocodiles and, and, and how the shared infrastructure and then like how you're breaking down your own like hand in order to build it up and, and see how you can manipulate that shared space. I'm like, wow, this is just like, like, I don't know how it would play out because I'm probably not going to have that experience for a period of time. But the way that I envision it happening was just like, so rich and i liked it so yeah yeah that's a good game too yeah I, it's one of those ones that i i feel like people will will either say oh that's it is what it is it's done or oh wow that was like a hidden gem people forgot about that one yeah kind of on that that edge yeah but is that is that a good non-answer then too yeah i love non-answers okay good <laughs> I, I we're we're on the same page then. Okay. Oof. I have so now we're on to like a, a choices, choices, choices section. And I have <laughs> I think the longest preface to any any question that I've set up for any guest ever. So if I Ooh. get to the end of this and and you're like, backtrack. <laughs> I know that I need to backtrack <laughs> sometimes anyway, uh, even in the ones that are less long-winded than this. Just let me know, okay? Okay. Okay, so we're swimming in a sea of endless choices for any text we can consume. Uh, I I know this one student that, I'm not kidding you, reads a book a day. Okay. Uh, so th good that's, yeah, very, very good. And... You know, so I was thinking about that when thinking about this question. I'm like, oh, like, you know, they're never going to run out of books. Uh, yeah. Ever. Even at this ridiculously fast pace, which I, I don't know anybody else who is putting down 500, 600 pages uh, a day. I'm probably closer to like five or six, but that's just me. And And I'm like, well, how many, like how many books are out there? All right. So like in, in the endless sea of choices. So I did what any real scholar would do. I typed it in on Google. I said, how many books exist in the world? <laughs> and, and if you type it in, Google like spits out a number based on uh, a medium article, uh, the 
website platform medium that somebody had written and it actually grabs like the wrong number. So it, <laughs> the, the, the writer of this article and, and like you get to a point where it has like a paywall and this was just meant to be anecdotal for the sake of this question. So I wasn't going to keep reading, but they're like, it starts at this number. It's like some ridiculously 150 million or something. And then it goes on and it's like, well, that's probably not actually right. So the long, long and the short of it is if somebody was uh, going to read a, a book a day, like forever, presumably it's going to take like several hundred thousand years of straight reading for that to happen. Yeah. Um, we can, we can do some quick, I'm going to do some quick bad math for board games. Uh, so if you go to BGG, hundred different uh, games per page. So, and there are, 1505 pages and growing uh, that's taking liberties with the math you know some are expansions some games aren't on bgg some are re-implementations let's just stick with yeah. that number and it's i think if i'm punching these numbers it would be a different game a day for like 412 years so not several Ooh. hundred thousand years <laughs> it's still, still quite a bit of time we're, we're not going to do it yeah we're getting there though yeah we are eventually so again, the whole point uh, of that preface was that the, the choices are endless. So then for the section, I'm going to give you three sets of three options that you might use to determine which game uh, is the game that you're going to choose to play. And I feel like if adding review is going to throw in a completely different wrinkle, so you can, you can determine like how you want to approach them how much you want to answer. Okay. You, you could literally just say, I give you the three options. You could say one word, uh, but I'm not going to stop you from, from expanding upon your thoughts either. Okay. So, so it's like three sections of three. Sounds I good. don't, I don't know how they're clumped or if the, the groupings make any sense or if they're even fair, it's definitely not fair in general because these things don't exist in a vacuum. You just have to pick between one of these three. Okay. Sounds and then there'll, there'll be a grand champ as well. Okay. Okay. So uh, section one, in order to make a determination as to whether or not the game you're going to play is the one that you're going to buy or play, uh, factor in uh, designer, publisher, and the game's setting. Which one of those three would stick out to you the most? Probably designer. Um, I mean, these are all valuable metrics, right? But like the designer and, and kind of in kind of in two regards. So the first would be if a game is coming out from a designer who I know delivers a certain degree of quality, um, I'm going to pay more attention to that designer. It's just that's just basic qualitative thinking right <laughs> but at kind of a kind of on the flip side is one of the things i value um at least in terms of my approach to writing about games and to the way that i've set up my site not to toot my own horn but i do think it's important to try to highlight work that would not otherwise be found so i uh i do try to uh pay attention to smaller designers or unknown designers. I tend to try to look for things that maybe would go overlooked. Um, and I do put a lot of effort into finding games that people might not know about 
Um, so I spent a lot of time on weird forums and <laughs> uh, board game geek, like designer, you know, work in progress threads um, because I want to find, uh, I want to find stuff that nobody would see otherwise. So so a designer that's recognizable, but also a designer that is not recognizable is something I'm looking for. I like that. And and it's funny, too, because I think when I was crafting that question, the, the open-endedness of uh, the designer and the way that I was thinking about your site, especially with, uh, hopefully I get the title right, was it Chroma Mix was one of the games that you recently? Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. I, I went to go check out uh, that designer's site immediately after looked at all the games that you mentioned and I I didn't actually like buy it at that point in time but that's just because I'm trying to be a little more steadfast and playing some of the ones that I have but I definitely high on my like wish list now and and I think just kind of exactly I mean, yeah right like trying trying to find someone like a Jorge Zhang or someone like Matilda Simonson, who's doing stuff that sort of toiling in their own little corner, making things that are really unique, that I think should have a wider audience, but just by dint of, you know, it's hard to be discovered. That's, that's a limitation, but also like uh, in Matilda's case, so she makes, uh, so her game is turncoats, which is a hand stitched game, right? Like discoverability, like it's not just discoverability in that case. It's also that she has a production bottleneck that's deliberate. Um, and I think these games should be talked about. Um, so actually kind of in terms of designer, the weird thing is that if you're a kind of a middle ground designer who you're like a commercial designer who designs three or four games a year and none of them really stand out to me, that's where I'm not likely to write about your game. Um, so fair. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, again, like, like you said, it's, uh, you know, it's well, and, and you have that limitation too, because you can't write about every game and, and every designer than yes. either. So, right. And I feel that limitation very keenly. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I can only imagine. <laughs> I can only do so many articles in a week and play so many, read so many. I can only suffer through so many rule books, you know, even well-written rule books. That's not the fun part of a game, right? So. Exactly. I mean, that's the, that's a part of it. Sometimes it can be fun, but yeah, it's, it's still get into the game. Okay. So we have designer as section one champion. I'll I'll okay. hold on. I'll hold on to that. Okay. Section two, I have impressions from other reviewers you expect. General board game hotness. And I guess you kind of actually touched on this one a little bit, but digging through the current releases in your own different way that isn't really linked to those two other ones. So in this case, I would have to say it's the digging. Uh, maybe not a, not the most exciting answer. I don't. Um, I don't want to sound mean. I do read other reviewers, but not many. Um, I don't. I don't think there's necessarily. I think there is some tremendous work being done right now, um, but I think it's either very nascent, where we have we have some people who are kind of starting, and unfortunately, in terms of the critical side of this hobby, there is a huge, very steep, precipitous drop-off where people burn out pretty quickly. 
Um, and so I think there are a few people doing great critical work, but it's not very many people or they're very new. Um, so I don't read that many reviewers and I don't usually watch videos uh, because they're so slow. Um, I I can read a lot faster than <laughs> I can watch a video. Um, I, I don't understand the appeal of video, but anyway, um, leaving that aside, <laughs> general hotness too. Like I look at the hotness, um, but even just seeing the hotness, I'm more likely to like click like 10 over, <laughs> see, see what's kind of like on the hotness, but maybe hasn't bubbled up to the top yet. I'm more interested in that. Um, but yeah, lots of digging, a lot of talking to people. I mean, I've reached the point where I have some friends in the industry and that's very helpful where they'll tell me about like, oh, we my my publisher was pitched a game that's super weird and we don't think we can get it to work, but we hope it is visible in some way. So uh, things like that. So definitely that one. So digging. All right, digging. And, and I mean, like I said, none of these things exist in a vacuum. So the fact that, like a lot of the designers that you are finding it's maybe, maybe we don't have to crown the grand champ. We'll see. We'll see once we get the third section done. Cause it might, okay. it just might be like okay. a harmonious combination of the three. All right. So section three for determination, uh, ease of play, you know, from the rule book to the table as one okay. innovation for two or a genre that you're currently you know, binging or, or playing a lot of games in for three. Oh, that's hard. I mean, they all have things to recommend them, right? I, okay. So this, my answer is very telling and it's, it's telling of me in a bad way. And it's telling, I think of one of the central problems with all critical approaches and it's innovation. Um, the the big critics fallacy i i fear is that critics desire novelty um because we play if it's board games we play 200 new games a year if it's movies we watch 200 new movies a year if it's television critics they watch so much bad tv and so critics are see are going through so critics fall prey i think really quickly to like tropism where we are worried about like, well, this is the same as this other thing that I saw, you know, last year, earlier this year. And so because we're observe because we're absorbing so much art and or play, we really start to look for like, what's new, what's fresh. This can unfortunately lead to like a jaded attitude where if something is really well done, but it's the way it's been done before, that might be great for, for audiences. They might love it. But often critics will kind of poo-poo that. Um, so this is a tendency that I notice a lot in myself and try to push back on a little bit that if a game comes along that it's just doing everything very competently but isn't new, like I will kind of step back and say, well, am I enjoying it as a game even though it isn't like blowing my hair back? I don't have hair, but like it isn't blowing air in my face, you know? It isn't making me excited the way something truly uh, that that's novel would um, like an example would be Arc Nova, which takes it repurposes concepts from like terraforming Mars and, you know, other card driven kind of interesting spatial games. 
but it's it's a good game. And when I've played it, I liked it. I liked it more than Terraforming Mars. I was having a good time. So even though I'm not going to be able to assess it in terms of novelty, I still feel like it's important to assess it in terms of it's doing things well. But unfortunately, I'm not immune to that to that trap. Um, so innovation of those three is the one that uh, I'm. It's it's what draws me in. It's what draws in pretty much every critic. Yeah, I think I think that makes makes a ton of sense. I actually just did a little uh, reflective bit, and I I'm not uh, like a critic. I will share my opinions on games here and there, but I just I don't know. I, I can't get in that brain space. I'll like I mean I'm sure I could, but at the same time I just want to work on other things. So there was a really quick break in the conversation here, not for you, but for us. And you'll be right back. Yeah, so I was just uh, kind of like following up to to your thought on all the like the different games that you're seeing and how you're looking for innovation. I just did a little yearly uh, look back or, or reflection, just like kind of for myself, and poked through all the games that I've played. And I think you know I had sixty games that were you know new to me for the year. Technically, like because I'm not trying to you know, stay up with any sort of, you know, reviewing hotness or, or demands from that side of things. I think only 17 of the, the 60 were from like this year. Only, <laughs> as I say, like some people are like 17 games is 17 more than I own, but presumably nobody who would be <laughs> listening to this or, or reading your work. But <laughs> all right. So uh, do we want to pit designer uh, digging through current releases in a different way and in innovation against each other, or are we? Do we feel comfortable like melding them? <laughs> um, I I'm fine not answering a hard question. Um, <laughs> it's yeah, it's I I thinking of those three, like which one would be preeminent? I don't know if I can answer. Yeah, I I'm hundred percent satisfied with combining them and i feel like your answers okay. were were clear enough that it makes sense and you know i preemptively set it up so it's like it's going to be a super heavy like death match uh for for them <laughs> but i i'm fine with them all all living and existing together yeah okay. live and let live yeah yeah that's good it's uh it's perfect for for our conversation and for the way that the discussion is so I'm all for it. Okay, so on to, we're kind of getting to some of the final uh, topics, but in an early communication uh, where I sent out, you know, reached out to you and was talking about, you know, some of my thoughts, I, I mentioned my appreciation of your yearly wrap-up post and the subsequent revisited posts, like a look back at, or 2022 revisited or, or mm -hmm. what have you. And then I had a follow-up thought about my interest uh, in, in like your uh, value of that idea of time as a metric. And you mentioned that you feel as if, feel as if the test of time might be a false metric. So, so your yeah. thoughts, <laughs> are, are are kind of like writing my question. So first off, like how are you defining uh like test of time and then also why do you feel like 
it might be a false metric? So that that's a great question <laughs> that I helped you write. Um, yes. So here's what I mean. So you know, so so as you've pointed out, I do at the end of every year, I do a a list of my favorite games of the year. And it's already kind of wishy-washy because uh, like they're pretty much just like the new games that are new to me that year. Mm-hmm. Um, so like if a game came from the previous year, I'm going to kind of like slide it onto there. Or if it's a remake, I might slide it onto there. Um, and then I do like to like at, look back at the previous year's best and see how they held up. But that alone, I think, is a... I think I'm actually engaging in a bit of a, a, a critical fallacy there. And um, so I actually haven't written the one, I haven't written my new year, old year article for this year yet, which is maybe a little embarrassing. It used to be a February uh, tradition <laughs> and now it's not February. Um, I've missed it by a number of months. Um, yeah, February somewhere, maybe. <laughs> yeah. It's, someone, someone's in February somewhere. Right. Um the reason the reason I haven't done it is just time, but it's also that I've been navel gazing about it a little bit. Um, I I do think classics exist, right? That that a classic is a game that you can play when it releases, and you can play it years later, and it holds up. I'm just not sure that any of the current games that we would label hobby hobby games have been around long enough to be a classic yet. I I th- you know like how long have games been good? <laughs> Uh, it hasn't been that long. Like some of the stuff we can go back and we can say like, okay, cosmic encounter clearly has like some staying power, except whenever it gets printed, it only sticks around for a little bit and we can, you know, diplomacy, diplomacy is old, right? Like that's from like the 1960s or whatever. So clearly that sticks around, but most people don't play it. Like it's a very niche hobbyist, like play by email, bunch of, you know, shut-ins. Like it's a very specific group. And, um, and I, you know, I'm talking about games that on the, for the most part I like, so I don't think we can really evaluate classics. Like what are the classic board games? Well, it's like backgammon. It's like chess. It's like go. It's these things that have cultural staying power that people can put into like a movie and everyone kind of recognizes the gist of what, uh, you know, go represents that people are smart and mathy. Or like playing chess. Like you're like, oh, well, they're spies or something like that. To me, that's classic. And so I think we create as critics kind of this weird short term concept of classic that exists in like our own weird little pocket universe where it isn't really a classic. Um, and, and that's just the first problem, right? Like the, the duration of history is long and we as a board game hobby are tiny, <laughs> you know, in terms of the scope of when classics can be evaluated, we're in this little diminutive slice of history. So that's the first problem. The second problem is I don't think classics matter. Um, now, what I mean when I say that is, of course, a big classic. I think chess matters. So what what are you talking about, Dan? Well, what I mean is that a classic does not need to be engaged with as a classic in order to have value. And in fact, I think that a lot of things have value that do not have duration. You know, I think of a, a friend of mine. I was talking to a friend of mine just the other day. And um, he had, he, he has a wonderful family and I grew up and I knew them and he has a little sister who unfortunately passed away when she was very young. 
And I think about her in the sense of the impact that, you know, she has been gone from my friend's life as long as she was in it. And yet she looms large in his life. The fact that she, that her life had a short duration did not erase its meaning. And I think that one of the problems that I have with my own, with my own revisiting list is that I go back and I have to say, well, this game didn't stand the test of time, but that doesn't erase the meaning that it held for me in the moment in which I reviewed it. And I think that one reason I'm a little dissatisfied with this is I think we just place so much value in this hobby on this notion of replayability when most people don't replay their games. You know, you'll get it to the table and you'll play it three or four times and you'll kind of have this acute beautiful flirtation with it and it'll be a bit of a whirlwind you know puppy attraction and then and that's great you know you you fostered a relationship with people or you felt something when you played that game or you ignored the pain that was you know endemic in your life because we live in a capitalist hellscape you know the game served a function and it was beautiful and useful and then to say, well, actually, in retrospect, I guess I don't like it as much because it wasn't replayable, I think is doing a really, I think it does a disservice to the way we approach our playthings. Um, so I've been thinking about that a lot lately. And at the same time, there's a commercial concern, right? Like people want to buy games that will give them a bang for their buck. And I respect that. But that's also a concern that hobbyist gamers aren't actually doing. <laughs> like, like no one's no one's trying to fulfill that metric. <laughs> you know, like, like my parents are trying to fulfill that metric, right? When they ask, like, what's a good game for us to get for the family to play at holidays, you know, for Christmas for everyone? They're looking for a game that we're going to play like every year for like 20 years. So replayability is a metric for them. But that's because they're not hobbyists. They're not playing games every week. They are not chasing novelty or new experiences, but they do that with other mediums. They they watch like five hours of TV a day. So of course they're chasing like novelty and, you know, in their preferred engagement with art. So when I, when I write about games and I talk to hobbyists, I've become very dissatisfied with this notion of looking for replayability. Um, I become a little bit disillusioned with it. And uh, that's, that's filtering into some of my thoughts elsewhere, like with revisiting stuff from the past. And it really became acute for me last year when the stuff that I was revisiting came from the pandemic. And I was saying like, did these games stand the test of time or not? And I'm going, well, but they withered on the vine because we were all like living like little hermits. And, <laughs> And, you know, and so, of course, the game didn't, like, take off like a rocket ship when no one could buy it and play it with their friends. It was just a very difficult time for designing and publishing board games. You know, this inherently social hobby, it's it's like evaluating a concert on, like, ticket sales in retroactively. And you're like, you know, that concert was really bad during the pandemic. But then you look at it and you're like, well, it was a socially distanced concert and everyone was spread out and it was like a benefit. And and so it held immense value in its time. But we're, we're looking at it from exactly the wrong metric given its time and place in that culture. And I think we're doing that a lot on the critical side of this hobby, myself included. 
And um, it's left me a little frustrated. So that's why I say that I think test of time is a little bit of a false metric. I can think of so many games that meant enormous, uh, that held enormous meaning for me that I played once um, or that are just not replayable or that are good for, you know, three plays and then you want to trade it. And again, I respect the commercial aspect. No one wants to like buy games and then not play them. But since we're doing that anyway, you know, I, anyway, so again, so sorry, this is sort of a wishy-washy answer and a bit meandering, but I think that's just where I am at with that question. Yeah, not, not wishy-washy. And yeah, there's like so many, well, like you mentioned the, you know, like some of the higher level, like emotional and philosophical ways in which you're approaching that in, in the games and, you know, other areas of life too, that make just like a ton of sense. And, you know, even though I'm not uh, tasked with this uh, difficult role of trying to like, even, you know, grapple with that in order to report on the, the games in, in the first place, you know, I, I think about that within my own, uh, you know, buying and playing habits too. And I'm, oh, I, I, I'm sure I've said this on even this podcast before, but I'm a hundred percent fine with playing a game three times or 30 times and, and realizing that the 30 times was like that number was the number that I was going to play it and, and just get rid of it. It doesn't, it doesn't like affect the way I engaged with it in the first place. So. Right. Well, I think that our hobby sees a little bit more actually corrective to the commercial concern uh, because we have a hobby that kind of embraces things like lending libraries and game swaps and math trades. This idea that you're, you're a little bit expected to use up your play things, uh, not physically, right? Like the games themselves are still good. Um, and I, I think we should have a bit more mentality like that. I do something, um, where I sometimes I'll just give away games because I'm sent a lot of review copies and someone will approach me on board game geek and they're like, Hey, I'm trying to get this game. I'm really excited about it. Is there something on my trade list that you would trade for it? And the answer universally is no. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> but the games I'm interested in, I have been sent already. And so the stuff you didn't want on your trade list almost certainly will not interest me. And now and then, though, I really have enjoyed just being like, hey, if you'll pay shipping, I'll just send it to you for free. Um, I think we should, I think this is, uh, I wish more people would kind of have that attitude, that these are things that you can share. Like we do a lot, like book lending and lending movies to people is really common, but I don't think we do it as often with board games, and I think we should. Like, um like how many, co like I, just, I think more people do it. Maybe it's just me, but like I've owned like 10 copies of Dune and whenever I finish it, I just like give it to somebody. Cause I'm like, Hey, maybe you should read a piece of classic science fiction literature. I want us to do that with more with board games. Yeah. I, I, I like that thought and yeah, I've definitely, well, and I, I do it sometimes for self-serving purposes too i'm like hey if i get you interested in this game like you'll be more <laughs> willing to play but no i i like that and i've i've you know typically if i sell games which i i've done too it's added like a different side of the ho uh, hobby to me like i've i've met legitimate friends from selling games 
to them and then and then yeah. after that i just give them games or whatever uh but yeah i don't know i i could maybe even potentially lower some of my costs which i think i think if you're buying from me on facebook you're getting a good deal there's there's my plug but <laughs> <laughs> but no in, in all in all sincerity like yeah if if it's something that i'm planning on being done with it should be like enjoyed by somebody else who was looking into it so yeah okay um hmm. i feel like you covered a lot in in that response too are there any other like false metrics that that you feel that you've been thinking about in a in a similar way to in alongside uh this idea of test time or is that just the one that you've been grappling with the most lately um, I mean, I th like price, uh, like things like that. Like, um, so one comment I often get is uh, like the comment on, so I review a game and people are like, is it worth this value? Um, I mean, that's, that's not a false metric because it's the reality we all labor in, but at the same time, it's not a metric I can actually talk about because I have no idea, you know, like if, if you're, if you're kind of in the middle class and you have a disposable income, like, sure, I guess it's worth it. But if you're like struggling to make ends meet, I'm like, no, there's more, <laughs> you know, like you should be, you know, there's probably ways you can get like games for free. Maybe, uh, you know, I, it's just very hard. And I think a lot of, um, an enormous body of our critical apparatus in this hobby is geared toward commercial reviews which I think are kind of meaningless. Um, anyway, like they serve a function. I'm not, I'm not, I'm pulling a face. I, I don't think they don't serve a function, right? I think they are valuable because they help people to direct their entertainment dollar into a good place. But I think that we emphasize that at the exclusion of other things. Like um, I remember writing about a game that was kind of expensive and somebody was discussing it with me on social media and they said, well, what about, don't you think this is a little classist? Now, first of all, I do think this entire hobby is by definition classist and all entertainment to some degree is classist. And yes, I, I, I sympathize with that. But then they were kind of surprised by my answer where I was like, well, you should steal the game <laughs> because I, I think art has value regardless of its commercial function that we ought to have, you know, like I'm a huge supporter of libraries because they allow people to engage with a wide amount of, you know, you, you have an ocean of art that you can engage with literally for free. Um, you know, I take my kids to the library twice a week because I want them to read widely and watch TV and listen to music as widely as possible for free. That's incredible. Um, I, I think good art retains its value, uh, and this goes for play too. I don't I don't necessarily think play is art, but I think good play and art are so universal that they retain their value regardless of commercial function. I think they are art and play, even if they're stolen or if they were borrowed. You know, they they still have that function. Um, so I I worry that in feeding our feeding our bellies and our wallets in this hobby, which is an essential function that sometimes we starve our hearts a little bit uh, because we think about games purely in terms of their dollar value, as opposed to 
maybe the way they feed us in other ways. Um, and unfortunately, board games are expensive. If I could magic that away, I would. So, bummer. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I like not to reduce all of those like great words on both both topics, but I do feel like there are a lot of parallels in your thoughts with kind of like that test of time as value and and money as value. Yeah, if that makes sense. I, you know, and, and, and I think they come, they, I think they do have a relationship. You know, I come from, I come, my background is in a field of study that is just perennially undervalued, which, and, and the same goes for English, right? That we want to sit down and talk to people about how do you evaluate history or words and how do you let these things touch you? How, how do you engage with something that people might label as problematic and still come away enriched from it? Um, that's difficult and it's 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 a mode of thinking that's constantly under siege um because it doesn't really produce Im immediate and tangible benefits for society or the individual um you know if i teach you how to be an electrician you have an immediate and tangible benefit if if you weave baskets you have an immediate and tangible benefit you've created a a phenomenon that exists in the rea in reality if I teach you to lead a better life, you, uh, so what? If we're evaluating everything as material and commercial, so what if you're happy or a sad laborer, you're still laboring, you're still creating, you're still a, you're still a decimal in the GDP. And so I think we do need to realign, especially in something like play, you know, we're, we're talking about play. We're talking about something that literally every human does which is to, you know, this is how children learn. This is how adults make friends. Uh, this is, this is even the process by which human beings mate, you know, play is so universal that I think we don't treat it with the seriousness and reverence that it deserves, including being willing to detach it just a little bit from its commercial assessment. I mean, like, like cheap ass games, the fact that cheap ass games shut down, I think was just, super tragic because everyone who plays board games has like 50 billion dice right like laying around you don't need new custom dice you just need new ways to use your dice um and that's kind of the core of play is that you give anyone a ball and they can play um anyway so now i'm rambling but but i i do agree that i i wish that we would be as interested in uh paying towards people's hearts as we do toward their wallets Thank you so much for, for sharing that. I like that so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, you teach English. So, uh, I mean, you're also providing non-tangible reality, you know. I mean... That's the goal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Well, hmm, there, there are some other, like, thoughts and, and everything that I was maybe like toying with, but we'll, we'll get to like some of the, the wrap up stuff and you still owe me a title so that I'm not going to let you <laughs> off the hook there. But, you know, we, we've definitely talked uh, primarily about uh, board games and our engagement with that, but then also, you know, especially with everything that you've been saying, thinking about art and our relationship uh, with it in, in a lot of these final thoughts for the, for the questions too. So one of my general uh, kind of like, 
wrap up questions and this this I might give you the opportunity to talk about something uh, non non board games is uh, just like sharing or and or reflecting on any any text so you know book movie uh, song album what have you that's been kind of stuck on your mind a little bit lately mm, that's a good question what has been stuck on my mind lately hmm I can make it not about board games. <laughs> you can make it not about board games. Um, I won't stop you. You can do whatever you want. I I am sovereign. I have I have free will. Um, I've been reading. I mean, uh, what's been stuck on my mind lately? I've been. <laughs> I I don't know. Um, I feel like if you had asked me this question at the beginning, I'd have a better answer because now I'm thinking about false metrics a lot. Um, <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about, uh, I don't do much thinking. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> so this is, so as you can tell, um, what have I been thinking of, about? Oh, that's so hard. What's been stuck on my mind? I don't know. I really don't know if I can answer that. I've been thinking about a lot of things. You know, the, I mean, the answer is kind of weird because I've been thinking a lot about Mormonism, which is maybe not an answer anyone wants to hear. Um, Specifically. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about some books I've been reading about Mormonism. I was reading Ben Park's Kingdom of Nauvoo, and that's really been sticking in my mind. Um, I don't know. What's been sticking on your mind, Ryan? Oof. Okay. Um, I, I've been doing a little bit of reflecting and, and first off, I mean, if you've been, <laughs> if you've been reading, if you've been reading books on Mormonism and that's, that's, what's been on your mind. That's what's on your mind. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, for me, I think one of the things that that I it's taken my wife and I to watch and, and we're technically well, ninety percent done. We've watched nine of the ten episodes of the the Last of Us series. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, I, so I've been thinking and, and we're not, and we're not done. And, and obviously, you know, I think the way I've been thinking about it is just kind of in, you know, in the intertextual uh, space too, of like thinking about my initial experience playing the video game and having that as like a foundation and how, you know, the show is obviously so much different. So that's kind of like why I've been thinking about it a lot. I'm not sure if any mm -hmm. of the thoughts I have on it are worthwhile. It's just, I think for me, it's more of a memory based thought and exploration of, you know, like how much I, I didn't remember or how much I remembered in different ways that, that were actually pretty good, like one-to-one -one representation. So it's more, more of like a, my approach to, both text in 
and like you said, like the experience uh, with the game like meant something to me at that time, and it was impactful. But now I have this different one four or five years after the fact. I don't know, maybe even more than that. I can't remember when I played that game. And just trying to compare time, memory, and me like consuming both of them in different spots. So that's the way I've been thinking about it. Okay. So so I have an answer now. You okay. sparked an answer in me. And and it is that I'm thinking a lot about Mormonism. Um but the but specifically the lens is that I recently finished Paul Schrader's um Man in a Room trilogy. Um so it's three movies that he did starting in 2017 I think with First Reformed and then The Card Counter was in 2021 and then last year he did Master Gardener. And I watched Master Gardener like two or three weeks ago something like that. And so I had kind of finished the trilogy and um, it's not a trilogy in the traditional sense. They have there. It's a thematic trilogy. The stories don't have anything to do with each other, um, but they're each about a man at a turning point in his life, sort of a, a crisis of belief, um, whether it be religion in the first movie or with institution in the second or with uh, like uh, assumption, I think maybe in the third and I've been thinking a lot about them in terms of, um, so especially First Reformed, which is this great movie about a uh, about a religious minister who is confronted with this notion of God's lack of care with uh, humanity, and this crisis that he has. And then the movie, and it's it's like poised to be this movie that's like a perfect faith crisis movie. And then in the and then it just drops the ball in like the last scene and sours me on the whole thing. And I and I feel the same way about the entire trilogy. Like each of these movies raises these really compelling questions and then sort of answers them with like this really disappointing triteness. And so I've been thinking a lot about. Do we, are there even good answers to the questions that Schrader is trying to ask with these movies or are all answers that could arise to like a faith crisis inherently trite or are, is, is there triteness like a defense mechanism on my part? Like they're actually profound, real, genuine answers. And I'm just like, Oh, love, Ugh. you know, like, <laughs> like that kind of thing. Um, and so I've been thinking a ton about those three movies in terms of, um my own uh personal journey so the reason i think about mormonism a lot is i was raised mormon um and that's something that my family has been having a tumultuous relationship since i was like you know 15 and um and so i think about that a lot and i live in utah where that's very uh present in the culture and um so thinking about my own journey of uh faith and belief and that of pretty much everyone around me um, in terms of, so th this month in, in the, through the lens of those three movies has been very uh, rewarding. Yeah. I, that, oh my gosh. I, I feel I obviously I'm, I'm not Mormon. I don't live in Utah, but I <laughs> not, not, not going to dive into all of the, the, you know, like tumultuous nature that, that you're <laughs> bringing up. But I, I think I think it's relatable and and let's just say that I have some some level of personal connection and understanding the the family dynamics and and religion and it's 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 a lot. I, I'm not sure if I've been <laughs> uh, like 
tough enough to try to explore that or, or just ignore? I think I'm in the ignore phase. So I appreciate you, Yeah. you thinking about it and reflecting on it too. <laughs> So. <laughs> yes, I think a lot of Americans are in the phase where it's a mouth sore that you can't quite poke with your tongue yet. Um, and we'll, hopefully we'll get there where we can bring the pain to the surface. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> oh, okay. No, I I really appreciate that. So yeah, thank you so much. And I I'm intrigued now to see if like if I were to watch this trilogy to see like what the impact would be on me from like a different lens too. So So have you watched any of those three movies or I have not. Okay. That's okay. Okay. But no, I that's see a like lot of movies. yeah, I That's that's the thing though. It's like, well, part of this too, and and I do a pretty junk job. I've done an okay job of like finding certain like they're not even recommendations. I'm not saying, hey, recommend me a trilogy, but I I Mm deem -hmm. it as like a recommendation to me still because I I want to look into it. And so far in like the eight with the eight guests, I've I've done some work. So speaking of of religion, like one of the ones that I'm like actually working through now is you know. Uh, Liz Davidson brought up Pentiment, the video game
Okay, I hope that doesn't violate any style guides or anything, but I I like when when you mentioned like the way that you approach your writing and trying to have fun with it. That's the way I do too. So style guides, be damned. <laughs> yeah, who cares about Oxford commas? I mean, uh, that's a different. <laughs> As an English teacher, do you have a strong take on the Oxford comma? I don't have the strongest take. I think like the way if like anybody were to ask me like you you or or anybody else, I would say for the sake of a high school student, it's my understanding that standardized tests, or at least it was my, uh, so maybe, maybe my, maybe I'm like wrong now. I, I think it was like that anything that's on a standardized test would have the Oxford comma in it, but you would never actually be mm -hmm. assessed on knowing that versus. Really? Okay, cool. So I don't, but I don't know like how that worked from like a reading passage section, if that makes sense. So like if, if they're taking the words yeah. of somebody else and they, they put this humanities piece in and it didn't include the Oxford comma, if they're going to like throw one in for the sake of yeah. being a consistent. Yeah. So I personally, uh, I think I, I tend to use it Yeah. unless I stylistically choose not to. Yeah. So another non-answer. Nice. Yeah. And that's what I love to hear. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, so for, for you and, and your reviews, people will have some, some end of year thoughts and, and all that coming up. Yep. Uh, so yeah, I'll do a few more reviews and then it's time to write best week, which is the last week of the year between Christmas and new year's when I list all of my favorite games of the year um so hopefully people will read that you know or don't uh <laughs> not your mom and um yeah it's just it's been a great year very cool I, i'm glad that it was a great year i'll i'll link the i'll link your uh your website in the show notes obviously i always say this there's there's going to be nobody listening to this that doesn't wouldn't know you before me outside of maybe like a couple friends maybe <laughs> maybe i have like two people in my corner that are gonna like discover you because of me but that's that's really about it <laughs> well to those people i'm excited to get to know you yeah all right awesome well, well thank you so much for your time i i had like fun i thought i broke my brain i fixed it rebroke it <laughs> answered some questions didn't answer others so i, I really appreciate it well thank you so much Ryan. it was a lovely time all right. Awesome. Thank you. Intertextual Cardboard Experience, the most eclectic podcast about board games and any other text that they connect to. Thank you so much for choosing to spend your time here. Any further support, such as sharing the show with friends, following the page's socials in the episode description, writing a review, filling out the feedback form, or doing anything else you can think of is greatly appreciated. Keep playing, watching, reading, listening, experiencing.